it sounds as if we might be beginning. Um, my name's Susan Schofield. I'm the secretary here at the school, and I'm just delighted to welcome you all in the audience here and our panel for tonight's event. Um, on our panel, we have James Dawson, Kate Kingsley, and Meg Rosoff. Um, we're delighted as a school to be hosting again um, this prize-giving event for the LSE First Story Creative Writing Competition, and it's part of a literary festival here, which is really rather an exciting thing that happens at the school. That was a, a, about a month ago. Um, we really think that creative writing is a very important skill for people to have, whatever subject people may study here. And looking out at you, we are hoping that some of you may be inspired by this event, please, to come to the school in due course, apply for a place here. It's the fifth creative writing competition we've held as part of the Literary Festival. It's the third that we have done uh, in conjunction with First Story, which, um, for those perhaps who, who, who may not know, a charity um, working to support and inspire creativity, literacy and talent in schools and communities. And so they arrange and pay for um, acclaimed authors to run weekly creative writing workshops for groups of about 20 students uh, in secondary schools across the country. Um, in a moment, I'm going to hand over to Katie Waldgrave, who's the executive director of First Story, who will be chairing our event tonight. But before I do that, can I just say a very warm welcome to the school and a fairly miserable night. Um, we will be inviting you, please, to join us for some drinks outside, not outside the theatre, but outside, just, just out, out where you came in. Um, where we'll also have copies of our panellists' books for sale. So, without more ado, um, may I hand over to you, Katie? Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay, hi. It's, it's really lovely to be here this evening, and I want to particularly again thank Meg, James, and Kate for um, judging this competition, and also, in absence, um, Naomi Alderman, who, who is not here. Just a tiny bit about the competition, which is we're so grateful to the LSE for, for helping us to host and promote and doing this together. It's been a really exciting thing and something we hope can go to strength to strength. Um, uh, and... The, at the end of this, there'll be the prize-giving uh, ceremony, but you may, there we've published a little anthology of the, the various winners. So thank you to those of you who entered, and please continue to enter. So we're going to have a short discussion amongst the panellists. They're going to talk to you for a few minutes each, um, and then as they're going, be thinking of questions, because then we'll have about 20, 25 minutes or so of Q&A, time for you to, to talk and ask questions, and I hope you have some. Um, I should say it's the first time I've ever chaired any kind of an event, so you must forgive me if I get in the terrible muddle, but it's very exciting to be here, and I want to start by introducing the panel properly. Um, Kate Kingsley, whose amazing novels you may have read, how would you describe them, teen novels, or is that insulting? Yeah, yeah. they're like teen novels, they take place in a boarding schools, they're a little bit racy um, <laughs> for <laughs> girls aged 14 and over. Highly recommended. Thank you. And James Dawson, who writes... Two novels, I guess, but of quite a different type. That's they? right. Yeah. Um, quite dark and spooky. Um, I, I'm apparently the new, the new. This is not my words, but the new <laughs> king of UK teen horror. <laughs> Mr. UK teen horror on my left. But if you want something a bit more sort of soppy and glamorous, go this way. And then finally, Meg Rosoff, who practically needs no introduction at oh, all. No. Award-winning, Carnegie, not everything winning, but. Um, how would you, would you send yourself oh. into a box in these ways? Or would no, you... talk to my publishers. They have no idea where to put me. <laughs> so sort of crossover-y, kind of half my audience is kids and half is adults. So that's always a pretty good sign. <laughs> a little bit of everything, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I think afterwards we should all them buy all their books. And so with no further ado, um, we didn't decide nor order, did we? Does anyone really want to speak first? I'll go first. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, we're supposed to be talking on the subject of innovation, um, and I feel I should tell you that um, uh, I 
didn't write my first novel until I was 46. And the reason I didn't write my first novel for such a long time was that I was completely rubbish at telling a story. I knew I couldn't tell a story. I'm really, really bad at plot. I've been bad at plot. I've been bad at stories my entire life. When I go to movies, I don't understand what the plot's all about. I'm staring and wondering why he's wearing that shirt. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, uh, So even though I knew I was a good writer from the age of about seven or something, I knew that I couldn't possibly write a novel. So I did all sorts of other uh, careers for really long time, for year after year after year. Um, I used to get fired from jobs a lot, um, especially when I went into advertising because I hated it so much and I usually made it really clear. Um, And finally, 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 as I got into my 40s, some things happened in my life which made me think that um, I couldn't go on getting fired from jobs anymore and I had to really just try and write a book. Um, Now, I still knew I couldn't write a book with a proper plot in it because I couldn't think of a proper plot. So in the spirit of innovation, I stole a plot and I wrote a a pony book. And that was my very first novel. And I wrote it just in a couple of months just to see if I could get from the beginning to the middle to the end. And lo and behold, the fabulous thing about writing uh, a a book, well, I, I stole the plot. Okay, so the plot was, if anybody's ever read a pony book, there's only one pony book plot, okay? (laughs) There's always a poor girl and a rich girl, and the rich girl has the fabulous expensive horse, and the poor girl doesn't have any horse at all, and she has to shovel out the stalls every day, and and one day she wants a horse of her own, and in the end she gets the rich girl's horse by some kind of machination. Um, So I thought, okay, I'll write that book. Um, and I started to write that book, and, and I, I wrote it quite quick, quickly, and I sent it off to an agent, and the agent came back to me, and she said, I, I think you're not a bad writer. She said, but I can't sell a pony book that's so full of horror and misery and sex and violence and all. And, and it was the first time in my life that I realized that even though you set out to steal somebody else's book that what's in your head will make it different. So I always say, think of your head as a, as a colander. You know the things that you drain spaghetti through that have the holes in it? So no matter what happens to you, every single day a million things happen to you, and 99% of those things will all go through the holes of the colander, and you'll forget them. They'll all disappear from your life. But every once in a while, something sticks in your brain, doesn't go through the holes. And after a year or five years or ten years, if you dump out your brain onto a table and you look at it next to your best friend's brain or your twin sister's brain or somebody who you've spent your whole life with, the first thing you'll notice is that every single thing in your brain is different from what's in the person who's been sitting next to you all through school or all through home or is your twin sister or your best friend or anything like that. And that, is, that will define who you are and what you should do with your life and who you should marry and who your friends will be and what you do for a living. And if you become a writer, what sort of pony book you'll write. Um, so the innovation isn't necessarily about inventing a whole new style of writing or a whole new way of talking about characters. It's about having something in your head that's different from what's in everybody else's head and using what makes you unique to make the way you see the world a unique a unique thing, and that'll make you a better friend and a better student and a better parent someday and a better lawyer or a better accountant or a better writer. And that's all I have to say. Thank you so much, Meg. And of course, I broke the first rule of what a chair should do, which is to say what you're talking about. Oh, right. <laughs> it was a beautiful I told example. you, we're talking, talking about innovation. We're talking about innovation, <laughs> of course, you were writing about innovation and this idea of what is new and what is different or what does innovation mean. Thank you. James. Thank you. Um, hello, I'm, I'm called James. Um, can you hear me okay? Yes. Marvellous. Um, we got an email about 
two or three weeks ago, saying um, we'd, we'd already judged the story before Christmas, so I'd already read the anthology, so I knew what was in it. But we had this email saying, come along to the prize winning, it's going to be fantastic, you're each going to speak for ten minutes about innovation. <laughs> and my first reaction, I'm not too proud of it, was to poo myself. <laughs> um, and A, giving speeches, um, even though I used to be a teacher, is a bit scary. I haven't got my glasses on on purpose, so I can't see you. I could just be talking to a wall. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I thought, I'm really scared. And the reason I was really, really scared is because I've never particularly considered myself to be an innovator. Um, a bit like Meg, um, I have pilfered and stolen my way into a writing career by um, sort of cherry-picking things that I liked when I was sort of 13, 14, 15 years old. My first book was about um, witches in Yorkshire, which is where I grew up. And so I, I nicked little bits of films about witches, like The Craft, and I nicked little bits of Twin Peaks, which was a TV show I really, really loved. And I sort of put them all into this pot. So I sort of thought, I can't really come and speak to a group of people about innovation. But then I thought a bit more about my second book, which is called Cruel Summer. And initially, in the first draft of Cruel Summer, it was going to be about a girl called Katie. And Katie was a nice girl. She had lots of red hair, a bit like Ariel, the Little Mermaid. And she was really, really pretty and really, really nice. And then I sort of thought, right, how can we make her a bit special and different? And so I started sort of stapling all these things onto her character about, right, she's going to be a bit posh, but she's going to be really ashamed of how posh she is. And so she's sort of going to put on an accent. And I just realised that she was a bit rubbish. But at the same time, I was writing this best friend character, this Ryan. And this Ryan um, started to speak a bit like me. And he started to talk the way I would. And he started to think the way I would. He's a bit weird. He thinks he's living in this strange soap opera. And that he and all his friends are just characters in a giant TV drama. And that none of it's really real. And all of a sudden, I realised about three quarters of the way into this book that actually Katie wasn't real. And Ryan was a real person because I'd sort of accidentally bled into the book and all of a sudden actually it was a little bit innovative and even though cruel summer you know it's like a lot of scary murder mysteries a group of teenagers go to a cabin and start to die one by one (laughs) and i bet one of them's the killer i'm just going to put that out there but um i realized that it's you can't not be sooner or later if you open yourself up to whatever it is you're doing whether it's painting or writing or making a short film or doing something on YouTube, or even if you're just doing karaoke, eventually you're going to think, I like how Adele sung that, but I'm going to do it different. And all of a sudden you've been... And you should. um, All of a sudden you've become an innovator without even realising it. And I think that's when I realised, actually, I'm not going to worry about innovation anymore because I think you just are. You'd have to try really hard not to be. So my final word on innovation is I really wouldn't worry about it if I were you because I suspect you probably already are. Thank you. Um, Some really interesting parallels already emerging what you're saying. And then Kate. Um, Hi. I, um, like James, do not love public speaking. So (laughs) I've decided to um, show a few slides to divert attention away from me to the OHP. I'm not sure how to work this. Okay. Um, So these are two paintings, which I'll get to in a second. Um, But I've been thinking about tonight and about the theme of innovation and also about what to say to you as a writer, to a group of young writers who... I hope are here to you know, celebrate the winners of this competition, but also to learn a few things from this great panel. Um, and one thing I wanted to say was that um, I feel like a lot of writers become writers because they have um, this kind of need and desire to communicate how they feel about the human experience, about being human, and about the things that matter to people. And I think although our lives change a lot over the years, over the centuries, Um, human nature stays the same. The things that matter to us stay the same. Um, I'd like you to look at the two paintings over there. Um, This one is by Peter Paul Rubens, who is a Flemish artist, and it was painted in the 1630s. The one next to it is by Picasso. You may recognize it, and it was painted in 1937. So the two paintings were painted 300 years apart, and they're obviously extremely different, um, (laughs) as you can see. but they have a lot of things in common. So uh, they're both of um, the painter's lovers. So the the older painting is um, Rubens' second wife, and she was 
30, over 30 years younger than him. And the other painting is of um, Picasso's uh, lover, and she was like over 20 years younger than him. And although the paintings have extremely different styles, they were both innovative at their time. And they also show pretty much the same thing. They celebrate the beauty of the sitter. They celebrate love and intimacy and desire. You can see in this older painting how um, the woman's dress like, clings to her legs. That was pretty racy at the time. And then in, in the picture over here, you've got the kind of blush on the woman's cheek, and you've got one of her eyes is red, and it's looking directly at the viewer. These, these little details are different ways of pretty much saying the same thing, which is, you know, I love this woman, I find her beautiful, and I'm representing her beauty in these new ways. Now, I'm not saying that any of you have to be Rubens or Picasso or any kind of old master like that, but I just wanted to point out that what you choose to write about is the important thing, and the way that you choose to represent that should be informed by how you're feeling and whatever it is that you want to say. Um, so in writing, the things that Shakespeare wrote about are the same things that Suzanne Collins was writing about in The Hunger Games. Things like survival, love, hope, freedom, um, violence, death. <laughs> um, so I basically um, just wanted to say that um, I think innovation should be motivated by passion for what you're doing and passion for your subject matter. And don't worry so much about the style of your writing. Worry about you know, what it is that you're passionate about in life. And I really think that the rest will follow in your writing. Thank you. <laughs>
okay, but it's, you know, pretty basic. And if you, like, applied yourself and edited it and put your mind to it, I think you could really improve on, on what you've done here. And that really made me think, because I was like, yeah, you might have all the sort of talent in the world, whether I do or not, I don't know, but this is more of a general comment. You might have all the talent in the world, but um, if you don't work at it and edit yourself and keep kind of striving to be better, I, I think um, you're not ever going to have a career as a writer. So that's one thing I would say about writing is... Unless it's you're E.L. James. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> which, which is kind of my point. I mean, I, I made a big point never to teach creative writing, for years and years and years because I thought half of the really successful writers in the world I would kick out of my class because there are plenty of really successful people who make lots and lots of money in writing who aren't particularly good writers. But what they are is they're really good at something else, at telling a story or talking to an audience or just getting right in on what other people are thinking about. Um, In the case of Fifty Shades of Grey, we know what she was thinking about. uh, and, you know, I can't, I, I may be a better writer than E.L. James, but she has 50 million pounds and I don't. Um, so, I mean, I think there are a, a, a million, there are as many ways to be a writer as there are to run a mile. You know, you can run it slowly and carefully and take your time and look at the flowers on the way, or you can run it as fast as you possibly can and get into the Olympics. But each way, you still run a mile. And the way you run it, uh, if you run it in some vaguely interesting way, then, then you're a runner in the same way that, you, that you're a writer. I mean, the one thing I would say is, and of course I would say this because I was 46 when I wrote my first book, I do think it helps to have a bit of a life. You know, I, I mean, if I look back, I think I was born a writer probably, but I didn't really become a storyteller until I was much older. And I think, you know, there are a lot of writers who can only write about writing because they've never done anything. Can I respond to that? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I have an opposite experience. I wrote my first book when I was 26. Um, and I think one thing I want to say to, like, young writers is my, the reason I started out writing teen fiction is because that's all a 26-year-old really knows about is, like, the experience of being a teenager. And as you're kind of living your life, I think it really helps to kind of write, you know, keep a diary or a notebook of your experiences, things that kind of are really vivid to you now. And, you know, you can sort of work those into a story that hopefully people who are teenagers or even older will want to read at some point. Inside, I'm still a 15-year-old girl. Um, (laughs) She's called Tiffany. She's a cheerleader. And she wants to be prom queen, but I suspect her best friend's going to get it. And that's why I write what I do, to be honest. (laughs) Anybody got a question for Tiffany or anyone else? (laughs) When you're writing a book, do you ever, like, have to be in one, like, mind frame or mindset to write the book or just whenever you just write it? That's an interesting question. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think write, writing basically is like doing schoolwork. You know, you... And in fact, there's a fantastic quote by, I think it was Picasso, actually, who said, when the muse comes to me, uh, she'll find me in my working in my studio. And so you have to work. I mean, I treat it as a job because my husband's a painter, and if, if I don't write books and, and sell them, then we all starve. Um, so you, you, but then to some extent, you also, you know, you can try to force yourself to write something, and sometimes you just have to be ready for it. You know, it's a little bit of each, I think. This, again, there's no right way. That you can, you, you know, if you're lucky enough, you can write a book once every 10 years, you know, when the spirit hits you. I know lots of writers who say, if I won the lottery tomorrow... I would, still, I would still get up every morning and write. Well, I'm telling you, I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, for me, I, it's, I find it hard to write a good book. I mean, it, it's really hard work. And, you know, when I, I do teach now, and my, my adults all come in. They all come into my class, and they go, oh. I said, what are you doing here? And they go, oh, I'm here because I wrote a book, and, and I got halfway through, and, and then I got stuck. And I look at them and I go, everybody gets stuck. That's what happens. You know, that's what being a writer is, is having whole days and weeks where you just don't know what to do and your characters sit there staring at you saying, God, we're so bored. This book is so boring. Nothing ever happens. So it, it's a lot of it's hard work. 
It's not just sitting with a pen, you know, poised over a piece of paper waiting for inspiration. But, it, but inspiration is good too. And, and there are days when you're so inspired that the words just pour out, and that's an amazing, amazing feeling. I also think, like, oh, sorry. No, no, no. But, <laughs> but there, are, there are loads of books you read that seem effortless, like they seem to have been written you know, effortlessly, and that's never the case, just, just so you know, like any book, even if it's written in the most casual style, even, even Fifty Shades of Grey, I'm sure the author, like, poured over that, being like, ah, no, this, this sex scene isn't quite right, whatever, I'm going to rewrite it, like, for the tenth time, and, you know, I think that that's something, if you're going to be a writer, that, yeah, you need to have perseverance and, and probably discipline, too. I feel, I feel terribly guilty, because I used to be a teacher, and I used to have to get up at six, and then I used to work till about six. Um, now that I can write full time, I feel really guilty if I don't. So I must admit, I'm, I'm a bit of a martyr to it. So I will, even on days where I would rather write shopping lists than the book I'm meant to be doing, I will sort of sit there and make myself do something. Even if it's only a hundred words, I can think, oh, at least you've done something. You've, you've achieved something. So yeah, there are days like Meg said, where it's just like this amazing and it all flows like water and you've got to this amazing bit that you've been dying to write for months. But then some days you wake up and think, oh, just, today they just have to go for breakfast. And today the characters, they really do just have to have breakfast. Yeah. And this is going to be boring. It's not the bit where they cast the spell or they find <laughs> the secret demon locket. Um, but yeah, they're going to have breakfast. And you have to do it, kind of. Just one, one thing that I always kind of found interesting because I was a reader for so much longer than I was a writer I mean I was a reader for years and years and years and years and I always thought because you read a book one beautiful chapter at a time and one chapter beautiful chapter second beautiful chapter and it all adds up to this beautiful book and it all is just like perfect I thought that's how books were written but they're not if you see the I mean sometimes occasionally they are very occasionally when you're lucky. But usually chapter one becomes chapter four and then you get rid of chapters two and three and then you rip some character out of the middle and then you change the ending and then, you know, you, you, you move the whole thing from London to Spain and, you know. So it, it, it can be really much messier than it looks in, in the end. I'm thinking too actually about the question, when, particularly when you were doing your first novel and you were teaching still. Yes. So how did you find switching from teacher mode of that pace to write a mode. Um, shall, I, shall I reveal a shocking confession? When it, when it got to the really good bit at the end, I just skived <laughs> off work for a week. I, call, I called in sick because I was so in the zone. I'd got so into that place where I thought, I cannot go and teach year six today. I have to, I have to finish this book, the first draft. Yeah. But, it was um, much easier for me. I just worked actually at work. Yeah. <laughs> I just wrote the book at work. Excellent. That's, that's sly. Yeah. yeah, but I wasn't teaching. I, I worked at a men's magazine called GQ, which was in New York, and um, my book is about teenage girls at boarding school. So I had like two lives. One was writing for men about like men's fashion and like men's interests, and the other was all about like these girls like makeup, jewelry, clothes shopping, like love crises, whatever. So it was kind of a nice like exit from my normal life writing. <laughs> That's really good. It's a good question. Thank you. Um, anybody else? Anything you've always wanted to ask? Or write to yeah. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Um, God, I sound horrible on a microphone. Everybody does. Um, <laughs> uh, it's just an overall question. Um, with society being there's so much controversy and diversity. If you could, where would you think innovation would be best applied to fix the things like, that were wrong with society? That's a brilliant and big mm. question. Oh God, so, we're, just, we're just humble little well. writers. I don't know. Well, the weird, weird, one of the things about, sort of going back to the story I was telling earlier about my second book, um, Ryan, the character that I mentioned, the one who sort of has now taken over and become the main character in Cruel Summer, um, he's a 19-year-old, out, gay, young man who has... It's really not part of the plot. It's about murder, but he just happens to be gay. His best friend, Alicia, happens to be mixed-race Bayesian. And the reason that I was a little tentative about Ryan being the main character is that I didn't think that my publisher, which is sort of a teen publisher, would be happy with having a gay male lead character in that, you know, teenage girls won't want to read about it, so, you know, nobody will buy this book, it will be a disaster. And my publisher actually was like, 
Are you kidding me? Ryan's brilliant. We love him. He's he's the best character. He's fun. He's got this unique voice. And so actually it was me holding myself back, really. And um, I think what I would say to all writers is, you know, don't be scared to include the diversity, you know, with, with worries that, you know, it would sort of put people off commercially. Because actually, I don't think it is. I think the world is dying for fantastic gay, ethnic minority characters, um, disabled characters. If you look at books like Have You Read Wonder by R.J., I think it's Palacio. 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 Yeah. Um, you, know, the, you know, everybody's crying out for these books. So I think, hopefully, although we are mere authors, hopefully we are just making things a little bit more normal. And I like to think that, you know, when Ryan is sat in school libraries... Brian is just making it that little bit more normal for young men to be out and gay and proud, mm. hopefully. Mm. Yeah, well, just, just carrying on from that point, like, I think um, change and innovation start at school. Like, I think education and having the best teachers and reading widely and exposing yourself to a whole lot of different influences and ways of thinking about people and societies and races and cultures and traditions, I think that's the most important thing um, to do, in, especially at the beginning of your life, um, is to kind of, yeah, expose yourself and open your mind to, to the world. And then hopefully we'll all be able to accept everyone. Books give, <laughs> books give you a sense of what's possible, I think, too. Mm. Sometimes you don't get what's possible at home or at school. You know, there's a lot of pressure, I think, to conform at school sometimes and... Um, you know, sometimes where you can really escape is in your brain and where you can be exactly who you are or change the world or make everybody a little bit kinder, you know, is in your head. And, and it's as good a place to start as any. Mm. Are you interested in changing the world? <laughs> yeah, good for you. Good for you. Are you going to write? Are you going to be a politician? Or what yeah, do you don't do? be How a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, be a writer. Be a writer. <laughs> That'd be a wow. good way to change Yay, the world, too. Yeah, that's a great thing. <laughs> Any other questions? There's the one down there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, sometimes um, when you read um, like about writers, you always see that, um, like you said earlier, the way they write the book sometimes, they, it just looks so effortless. And when you try to write something yourself, you always get to that point where you you think, oh, this is boring or this is rubbish or yeah. how am I going to where am I going to go from it? So how do you avoid like how do you get over the um, wanting to give up when you um, you get it to a rot? That's a wonderful question too. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I I think I, I'm desperation, <laughs> fear. You know, I mean, literally. I I mean, I know. You know, I love my husband desperately, but he's never really made any money. So if if I don't finish a book, we we starve. <laughs> so you know, sometimes it, you know, it's. I mean, I worked for twenty five years in in different proper jobs, nine to five, well, eight to six, or whatever jobs, and you know, you sure don't feel like going in every day, but you know, you just you do it because you have to do it, and. It's sometimes I think of writing as like digging a bloody hole, you know. It's just such hard, unfun work sometimes, and you just think, whatever made me think I wanted to do this, you know? It's just, and I have months sometimes where I hate my book and I hate my main character, and you know, I I try to kill him off, like I bring in, <laughs> like I once I dropped a piano on his head, and but he just wouldn't die. Um, I mean, it, it you know, it's just sometimes really hard, and you don't see the hardness when you read a book, and that's the best thing about reading a book you really like, is it just feels like it sprang, you know, from the ground like a beautiful bubbling spring, but you know, and occasionally it does, but mostly it doesn't. Mostly, you know, you just look in the mirror and you think, do I want to go back and work in advertising again or do I want to finish this book? So, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I mean I sort of, for me, it's always around 12,000 words when I get 
a little stuck. Um, the first 10,000 words are brilliant. You're coming up with character names. Um, it's new and exciting. It's a different flavour to the last one. Then you get to 12,000 words. You realise you still have about 60,000 words. And it looks like you really like you've only just... And there's just, no plot. You're at base camp Nothing's one. happening. You're, you know, you really are at base camp one and there's a whole big mountain to go. So when I cheat a bit, I start Googling pictures of actors and models that would play them in the film. <laughs> I start watching similar films, which obviously is a lot of horror films. Um, I sort of dig out ancient films that I dimly remember watching on BBC Two when I was about ten. Like, did I imagine that film or did it really happen? And you must admit, you, sort of, you are slightly chasing the muse around. I think now that I'm on contract, the days of me waiting for the muse to fly up at the window are over and I actually have to track her down a little bit harder so yeah I, I kind of I trick my brain into wanting to write it again really I think that's yeah that's a really good point like um coming at things from different angles you need to kind of like oil the hinges of your brain sometimes if they're feeling a little rusty and stuck like and you're just you're trying to push them and push them and push them and the thing to do often is to just kind of try coming at your problem from a different angle like watching films or like reading other books that might inspire you and help you see new ways of thinking about what you're trying to write about or tackling the problem. Um, I also think that um, failing is just a part of writing. Um, I think it was Samuel Beckett, who's the famous 20th century playwright, said, "Fail, well, try again, fail again, fail better. And I think that is like a great description of the writing process. You're always trying. If you fail, you just you'll, you keep failing, but eventually you'll you'll sort of fail better and fall into the right way of doing it. Um, I think also sometimes um, when I'm writing and I am at a part where I'm just like, oh, this is so boring. This is so annoying. I start thinking actually, if I'm finding this boring to write and I'm creating <laughs> it, like the reader's going to find this really boring to read. So maybe I am really like not writing this book in the right way. Maybe I need to kind of not write this chapter and think of a different way of saying what's supposed to happen in this chapter. Like I don't know if any of you have read this book called A Visit from the Goon Squad, and it's it won the Pulitzer Prize, which is this big literary prize in America um, a couple years ago. And there's a chapter in that which is just just in the form of a PowerPoint presentation. So it's all these slides just with different kind of labels on them. And it, it expresses beautifully like what's going on in this young character's life and how she's thinking about all the people and things around her. I think it would have been a much more sort of mundane, boring chapter if it had been written straight out. But the writer obviously was up for experimenting and innovating. That's the first time I've ever heard of anyone writing a chapter in a book as a PowerPoint presentation. So... I would say try a new way if you're, if you're stuck, maybe. You can always give it to someone else to read and say, what do you think happens next? And then when they tell you, then you quickly write it down. Also, <laughs> <laughs> that was wrong, actually. Yeah. You're wrong. That's not what happens next. We've already yeah. learned stealing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I just saw it. Yeah, here. Oh, sorry. Hold on one second for the microphone. That's great. Thank you. At school, when we're taught English, um, when we're writing an essay, we're usually asked to say, um, what is the author thinking? What are they trying to portray? When you're writing a book, is that what's going through your head? I think, this is, I was talking about this on Twitter yesterday, actually, about like one of my friends, I, 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 this is so not my style of writing, but he writes the theme on the back of his hand so that when he's writing, like his new book, the theme is privacy. <laughs> so all the way through, some poor A-level student will be, James Smythe, views on privacy are woven throughout. Please tell us examples. I, I don't do that. Sometimes when I get to the end of the book, and this has happened with the one that I've just written, I must admit, until I got to the end of the book, I wasn't sure what the book was about, you know, the big about you know, I know what the book's about, but um, it didn't come to me. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is what I wanted to say. You know, this is, you know, this is, about, this is about how the character changes. But that's very much a personal thing. My friend James, he likes to write the theme on the back of his hand. For me, the theme usually stems a bit later. When the characters have been through the mill a little bit, they tell me what it is they've learned, not the other way around. No, it sounded like you had a strong. Oh, yeah, no, well, um, yeah, it's, it's really sad that in school, whenever, because my daughter's 15, and so I, I'm endlessly seeing her write essays and creative, you know, so called ha ha creative writing. Um, and um, she says, I said, look, why don't you just see where the story goes? And she goes, we can't do that. We can just see where it goes. We have to know where it goes. <laughs> 
you don't know anything about writing. Well, obviously, I don't. Um, but, you know, you do learn to know where the middle and the end is and all that kind of... Because, you, you know, you've got you, you to gotta do it. You've got to learn in school. You don't have, like, six months to write an essay. Um, you've got to pass it in on Thursday. So you kind of have to vaguely know what the beginning, the middle, and the end is. But, but there was, I was in New York recently, and there was a really famous illustrator there called Sean Tan, and he was talking. He said something that really I just loved. He said, everybody thinks you come up with an idea, and then you draw the picture. And he said, that's not how it works. He said, drawing is thinking. And it's the same with writing. Writing is thinking. You're, you know, your book develops in a way you didn't expect it to sometimes. Um, you know, I mean, I've had things happen in my books that are so shocking to me, you know, that I have to get up and walk around the room and then I go back and reread it. Oh, my God, what? Oh, you know. And that's because, you, you know, you, you're only thinking of what's happening as you follow your characters sometimes. So school is different from life is the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would say the same thing. I think, um, like, quite often I'll come up with an idea which, you know, just pops into my head. Like, the book I'm working on now, I had a dream. And I was like, that was kind of a weird dream. And I just started making notes on my computer about the atmosphere of the dream. I was like, hmm, I kind of like it and kept going. And, you know, the idea I started out with in the dream and what I'm actually working on now, like, so different. So you do kind of morph and change what you're thinking. um, And you kind of have to go with the flow of the writing and, like, the logic of the characters and stuff. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I I agree with James, too. You don't sort of set out, like, I want to write a book about uh, the importance of education and then, like kind of set out to write it that's not really a kind of, that's not a fun story to read that's more like a kind of um, a lecture or something and th- this is just me blathering on but um, the last book that, that I finished it's not out till September um, I was so stuck I had just no idea I figured I'd written five books I was never going to write another book again I was completely stuck um, and I knew my editor read my blog so in my blog I wrote about naming characters and I wrote my new book. The main character is called Mila. And I chose it this way, blah, blah, blah. Well, there was no book and there was no main character, but I knew my editor would be reading it thinking, oh, good, Meg's working on a book. <laughs> so then more weeks went by and still nothing, nothing, nothing. I'm finished. We're all going to starve. And I went, I took my dogs up to, to the park and this little cute little dog came running over to me and I was like patting it. And I noticed that on the tag, its name was Mila. And I thought, oh, Lord, somebody's sending me a message. (laughs) And I went back that day with nothing in my head at all. And I wrote down the first line of the book was, I was named after a dog. And then suddenly there was a whole story in my head. You know, and suddenly it just, you don't know where it comes from. But the idea that you actually start out a whole book with a theme and a story and a bunch, you know, sometimes you start out with like just a carrot, you know, or an earthworm or nothing at all. And then suddenly, you, you know, if you're lucky. <laughs> I think that was such a good question, because I must admit, I, GCSE English very nearly stopped me reading forever. Yeah. Because it squeezed the fun out of some already quite joyless books. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I think that, yeah, please just keep reading, whatever yeah. happens. Um, and there was another hand, yeah. Go on, tell yours as yeah, there first and over here afterwards. Time a little bit. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you could like just explain, like you know, when you're thinking about your characters and things, how do you know what they would do in a situation, or like how would they react in things? Like, is it just your voice, or is it like where do characters come from exactly? Ooh. Ooh, Where do you question. begin and the character end? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I Tiffany. used to think... <laughs> oh, did you want to go? No, no, you go, Kate. Um, I was, I was going to say, well, I used to um, think about writing, it, like, that it was a little bit like acting. I, I know that sounds kind of weird, but I almost feel like you have to be an actor in the body of your character. Um, and the character has to be real enough to you so that you can do that. And I, the other image I have in my head of creating characters... You know in those cartoons when like they show a hand like drawing a character and then the character kind of comes to life and takes color and stuff and that's kind of like what the whole process of like having a character in a book is for me anyway like you start out with you know something quite vague and you keep putting the character into different 
situations more and more and they take on like more colour and more life until they really are you know you can put them into any situation and, and you'll sort of see how they how they will react will act I mean it's almost like channeling the character it sounds it sounds a bit weird and kind of mystical and I'm not trying to make it sound that way but that is a little bit how it's kind of instinctive but also a lot of work and trying to put yourself into other you know it's like if a friend asks you for advice and you're like hmm what would I do if I was that person you try and really like imagine yourself like you kind of have to do the same thing with characters it's almost like they're your imaginary friends maybe <laughs> yeah I think I think it's a, a lot about what if I think the what if question is kind of what if with Ryan what if I'd been to drama school and then one of my friends died what if um, I was at a girls' boarding school, and my mum was a famous New York actress. And so, you, the, but because you want your character to be real, and the only person who you know is real is yourself, kind of. You, I think that there has to be a little bit of your common sense and your experience in there. But you can, through the What If network, you can take yourself really, really far away. And like with Alicia in Cruel Summer, I've never been a mixed race. 19-year-old girl, but, you know, what if I was? What would that be like? And that's, that's probably the funnest part of my job, really, that whole what-if pretending game. Yeah, I don't think I know the answer to that question. I mean, it's a really, really good question because you hear people talk sometimes, don't you, about saying, well, my character didn't want to do that. And you think, what, are they crazy? <laughs> They're delusional, you know, but sometimes... You're, you do try. I mean, I had a character who I really hated, and, and I kept trying to send him off to different places. I sent him to the Orkney Islands. I spent a whole afternoon looking at, tra- at um, uh, ferry schedules just to get rid of him. And then he wouldn't go to the Orkneys. He got to the Orkneys. He just stood around looking, and, you know, the book just died. So then I took him back to the airport and sent him to Greece. That didn't work. You know, and eventually I just left him at the airport. You know, for any, he lived at the airport for a few weeks, and that seemed to work. <laughs> but, you know, you do have a feeling sometimes when you try to make a character do something that they don't want to do, that the book just kind of dies a little bit. And, you, you know, and you think, oh, maybe I should try doing something else. But again, there's no right answer. You know, and if I had decided that he had to go to the Orkney Islands, and I wasn't having any, you know, uh, I wasn't taking any back chat from him, I would have just sent him to the Orkney Islands, and he would have had some kind of adventure there eventually. Probably would have fallen in love with a seal or something. <laughs> That's hot. Yeah. That's a great question. And um, you've had your hand up for a long time. Hi there. Um, I'm a translator, so I'm quite interested in, um, in your experience with translators, if you've been translated and uh, if you have a relationship with them, and if there is a difference between the different languages, what you learn from it for your writing, that kind of thing. I think I can answer that question. I have just spent four days with my German translator. What, what language do you translate from? German. I won't mention her name. Um, actually, we do have quite a close friendship, um, uh, but she does drive me mad. She's very, very German. Um, and, and I was really... I have close relationships with both my German and my Dutch translator. And my Dutch translator is hilarious. She phones me up, you know, when she's read the book... <clears throat> And she says, Meg, I'm sorry, I'm not accepting these titles anymore from you because my titles are often only work in English. She said, I'm afraid that I've had it. No, no more titles like that. And I sort of cringe, you know, and think, oh, my God, I've got to have better titles. And, and um, she's very stern with me. And my German translator calls me up. Like, I, I, I just wrote a book um, called There Is No Dog about God turning out to be a 19-year-old boy. And... There's an expression I use because he's quite immature in some ways. And he was talking about, somebody in the book was talking about sex. And they used the expression squishy woo-woo. And my German translator called me up and says, Meg, what is this squishy (laughs) (laughs) woo-woo? And then I have to say, oh, well, it's not a word, obviously. It's something I've made up, you know, and it has sort of overtones of childish words. You know, woo-woo, I can see your knickers, you know. Um, and then squish, you know, I mean, I won't go into it too much, but, you know, um, but then I think of, I've been translated into, I don't know, 26 languages or something, and I think of all the people who never phone me up. So I, I guess they just take a guess. But 
I was so moved by my translators. Um, and my Dutch translator told me that with my first novel, she translated the whole thing and then threw it away because she realized she hadn't got the voice right. Mm-hmm. And she started all over again and, and did it again. And, and I was so, I've been so impressed and, and almost infatuated with my translators. And, of course, as you know, they get paid almost nothing and they get no credit at all. Um, so the one of the main characters in my next book is a translator. <laughs> so. I'm wondering if that's actually true or if it's like the dog named uh, Mila. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there is genuine. No, no, the next book, the book that's finished. Oh, oh right. Okay. Yeah, no, no, it's... it's um, I'm just about to be. My, my, Germany will be my first foreign territory that I'm, I'm assured I will be seeing it any day now, but... I'm not as famous as Meg yet, so I, it's just been done, and I will like it or lump it. <laughs> yeah, I was translated into French, and um, like I, I didn't have any relationship with the translator, and like the only thing I did A level French, so but like I forgot it all. So when the book arrived and it was in French with a cool like French illustration on the cover, I was like, wow, this book's really good. I can't really understand what it says, but I'm sure it's great. You know, I kind of preferred the look of it in French to in English because <laughs> obviously when your finished book arrives on your desk, you're always like seeing all the problems with it, and when it becomes a kind of foreign entity, you're like, great. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's such an interesting subject. There, there's a I mean, we could go off on. <clears throat> digressions forever, but there's a German YA writer called Andreas Steinhoffel. Have you heard of him? Anyway, he wrote a fabulous novel that he sold to an American publisher, and the Americans had one translator to translate from German to English because they never translated anything from German to English, whereas in Germany, there are hundreds of translators, and they carefully match the style of the translator with the style of the novel. And his translation from German to English was so bad that he hired somebody in Germany to do a really beautiful translation and then went and paid for it himself and then went back and, and sold it to them. But, you know, I mean, places like Germany where there's such a... Um, they value foreign literature so much, um, you're much more likely to get a really good translation than somewhere like America. Talking about translating, I was wondering what kind of feedback do you get from abroad once your book has been translated and published and people have started reading that? Well, you don't get any feedback. I mean, I've won a couple of really big prizes in Germany, so I think I must have a very, very good translator. Um, But I don't sell very well in Italy, for instance, so I think my translator must be rubbish. (laughs) But but actually, I don't know that. I mean, and in fact, it's probably not true at all. I think my books are quite dark, and so they're more suited to, you know, German or Dutch or, you know, certain styles. Um, uh, I was just curious, because in this country, once you read something, you've got an opinion on it, you start writing back to the author, to whoever published it, you know, writing something about it. Uh, expressing an opinion, but sometimes, you know, abroad, because you have a certain style of writing, and abroad is uh, a completely different thing. Uh, I was wondering if they ever write anything back. I would write uh, something back if I read something that I liked, you know, I would share it with my friends. You would write to the the original yeah. author? Yes. Yeah, I do get, I do get lessons, uh, I do get letters, but they're often from uh, kids around the world who have read the book in English and therefore write to me in English. But sometimes, you know, sometimes, I mean, m- most countries are more bilingual or trilingual than we are. So I do often get letters in English from people who've really liked, like, like the, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's not, yeah, emails mainly, yeah. And is there a final question, do you think? I think we're probably. It's actually a very simple question. Uh, how is technology helping if it is uh, the creative writing? Yeah. Oh. oh, that is such a fabulous question. Mm-hmm. You do a lot of like, sort of social media stuff, don't you, Well, not particularly. Not really. I mean, uh, I think as a writer now there's a huge pressure to be online a lot kind of 
advertising yourself uh, you know, on Twitter and having your Facebook page. And my publisher in America was like, oh, you should run online Twitter competitions and you should buy like, iPods to give us prizes to the people <laughs> who win them. And I was like, sorry, like, I can't afford my own iPod. <laughs> you know, and that, so that, to me, is actually a, a hindrance to the creative process because I think a lot of writers become writers because they like to sort of express themselves through writing novels and you know not in sort of tiny little tweets and but yeah so that that's my experience of technology I don't really find that it aids the creative process oh the one thing I would say is on Facebook the only reason I belong to Facebook is that uh, I go on and um, look up people's names to like steal their names if I'm looking for a character who sounds really posh or who sounds really like annoying or whatever I'll go and like look up my posh friends and be like oh look that's a ridiculous name I'm stealing it <laughs> and I'll do like amalgamations like you can never t- steal someone's actual name you have to take like first name last name or change the spelling a little bit or whatever but you know so that, that's that's quite good stalking people's photos for like ideas for scenes and books and stuff <laughs> is kind of fun too um, but yeah I mean apart from that it's not really kind of on my radar particularly it, it is a colossal waste of time <laughs> I mean, everyone I know wastes about 22 hours a day. <laughs> I don't know, because I, I don't know how anybody wrote before the internet existed, given that um, the, my new one is it's entirely in Spain, in a place where I've never been. But through Google Maps and Google Street Maps, I was able to make sure it was correct down to the finest detail. Initially, I set the book in Portugal, but they, my editor felt it would just make more sense in Spain. And I was like, are you kidding? I went to Portugal. But, um, <laughs> that, yeah, never mind. Um, so yeah, the internet's a big help. I mean, social media, yeah, massive waste of time, but certainly publishers really, really like, like Kate says, really like you to be on it. Because, again, it, it's the, the new way of fan, fan mail, I guess. You know, I've had a couple of beautiful handwritten letters from people who've read Hollow Pike, but I've had many, many more emails and many more tweets and many more Facebook messages. Um, so it does feel like, you know, you, you can connect with readers much more closely, and I know, I know they like it for that reason. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, even when I started writing, so I think I wrote Hollow Pike in, started in 2008 when I was looking for an agent. My agent still wanted the first 30 pages printed out in an envelope sent off on paper, whereas now, even, what, four years later, everything is emailed. So I think, you know, a lot of our industry now just exists online. You know, there's some ridiculous clause in my contract about printing costs that clearly is never going to be used because we never print anything out anymore. Is that what you meant? I mean, did you mean the actual writing process? Yes. Because, I mean, I, I just want to say that uh, uh, this is what I've been reading on the, on the bus on the way down, Ford, Maddox, Ford, 900 and something pages, tiny, tiny little type. And you just couldn't sell a novel like this now. because And, and that's why I love it. It's slow, it's, it's wordy, you know, it's a real escape into a whole other world. It's not quick and fast and jump, you know, and you cut that out, you know, delete. It's, you can tell it was handwritten and over a long period of time, and there was no editor saying, you got to grab the reader by the scruff of the neck and drag him through the book, you know, which is what editors <laughs> actually say. What's the hook, Meg? Yeah, what's the hook, Meg? Yeah, before, I, you, know, before you hit them. <laughs> and he's obviously not interested in the sex scene on the first page. I mean, it's a totally different um, kind of way of thinking about writing, and I find it really, really lovely. And, and I'm reading it in a book and not on a Kindle, even though it's very heavy. Um, but it's, it's a really beautiful, deep experience in a way that an awful lot of stuff written now isn't. But, you know, probably a lot of stuff written then wasn't very good either. I think probably, which was a great question and bringing us right back to our theme, so thank you very much. But I think we probably have to wrap up before the, the prize winning. But I just thought it was a really, really fascinating conversation and was particularly struck by the quality of questions. It's always frightening to ask, or at least I find it, and everybody's question was provoked such really good discussion. Yeah. And are there, are there a lot, uh, is everyone in the audience a writer, secretly, or not secretly, except for the parents? Put your hand up if you're not who's, a who's a writer? <laughs> no, who's, who's, who's sort of a writer? There must be more. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> at least 12 of you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, no, because a lot of them sounded like writers' questions. They did, didn't they? they yeah. Really yeah. Thinking through as, 
the process of what, how, how you do it. And it seemed to me interesting as well. I mean, what I do at First Story is, is working with lots of different schools. And one of the things that really struck me is that I suppose when you hear the word innovation, you maybe think it means, like, making up crazy stuff or it's got to be totally new. And that almost everybody said that innovation in their case began with stealing or borrowing or going mm. further into themselves. And it's when you're feeling the truest or really writing about what feels right that that the innovation comes. And, and certainly from where I sit in First Story, it's really interesting. Kids begin, the students beginning the program at the beginning of the year will often write stories about, like, everybody ending up dead and there's lots of magic and vampires and witches and drama, which is all fine. But it is interesting how by the end there's many more stories about a memory of a grandmother or a walk to school or something that happened when you were a child, which may also be made up and may involve magic, but feels more authentic. And that, that's, to me, when writing becomes innovative. So I think it's been really interesting. Just and Shakespeare stole stories. Everybody's mm-hmm. and, and the Bible. Apparently there's a um, story found written in uh, Assyrian um, tiles in clay about a story about an ark, you know, and a, and a big flood, and, and way before the Bible was written. So, so keep stealing. Keep yeah. stealing. <laughs> um, well, I think we're going to go now. Kate is going to, as chair of the judging panel, is going to um, announce the prizes and bring out some certificates and so on. Do you want to say what Naomi had said as well? Or? Um, sure. Yes, she'd say that. I mean, maybe a round of applause and a thanks, a huge, huge thanks. Yeah, yeah.